So welcome everybody. My name is Ember Kelly and I am the Director of Religious Education at the Fourth Universalist Society on the Upper West Side in New York City. And it's so wonderful to be here with you all today. I am just so excited for this event and so excited for the collaboration that this event uh, promises. The energy, these weeks building up to this event of bringing together all these amazing partners. I'm just so honored to be amongst this group and to get to uh, help host it and to get to share in this amazing work tonight. Um, so it's so wonderful to be amongst all of you. I do use she and her pronouns, as you may uh, notice in my biography here on the bottom of my screen. We do have a couple ground rules that we use at most Fourth Universalist educational events. So this is an educational space, and while disagreement may happen, we ask that folks practice respect. This is a liberatory space, and we're not going to debate issues of oppression being real or not. We'll do our best to focus on voices from marginalized communities. And then we like to respect our time and keep discussion on topic. And on that note, we're actually gonna be doing things a little bit differently. Right now, we kind of have everybody sharing where they're calling in from tonight in the chat. Uh, but in the next few minutes, we're going to be turning off the chat so that we can focus on the presentation. And then instead of a normal time for questions at the end, we've actually decided to go with a time for action. Uh, so we're gonna have some actions that you'll be able to take and we're gonna have some music playing again uh, that you can be taking these actions. And so uh, we won't have an open question time at the end. Instead, we're gonna ask that you take some time to take some actions to work to confront climate change. With that, I am honored to hand over the mic to the Reverend Dr. Natalie Finnamore for our opening words. Thank you so much for being here, for inviting me to participate. It's so great to see people, all of you from all the places that you are. I'd like us to begin with these words of prayer and meditation, reflection. May we begin with humility, humility. For we live on an earth we did not create and we cannot create another in her place. For we live here as creatures among other creatures, all in need of this world's help to survive. May we begin in hope, hope for the day we turn from learning to destroy to fully embrace our immense abilities to connect, to create, to renew, and to repair. May we begin in love, love for all the beauty and all the possibilities we seek to make real. May it be so. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Camila. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm on Munsi Lenape land in Manhattan. So tonight is a very exciting night. We have a bunch of different organizations and people working together, coming together to have this panel and also take on this huge issue that it takes all of us together to actually tackle. Here we go, thanks. So I, tonight, I'm representing Nudge, which is the New York Unitarian Universalist Justice Action Network. Um, you may have heard of 
action networks in other states as well. Finally, we have one officially in New York. So we have a new Facebook page. Um, we have a Mighty Network, which you may have heard of before. A lot of social justice action networks utilize Mighty Network. Um, we also have a mailing list, very rare mailing, just important stuff. And we have a new website that we're gonna be launching really soon. So I'm very excited about that. Um, we have a legislative workshop coming up in January. So keep an eye out for that. You can find out about that via our new website, Facebook, Mighty Network, and the mailing list. Um, and I wanna just take a few more minutes to have a few additional announcements um, before we dive into our panelists today. Take it away, Daniel. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, it is absolutely wonderful to be here with all of you. Uh, I am Daniel Lawler, the Reverend Daniel Lawler. I just was ordained on Sunday, and I am so happy to be with you to talk about the solstice celebration that UU Ministry for Earth is sponsoring towards the end of the month, December 22nd at Wednesday night. All are invited, and we hope that we can see you there. And now we have a special announcement from David Sayer of Beyond Plastic. Yes, good evening. I'm David Sayer. I'm uh, representing Beyond Plastics this evening. And I will mention uh, the Beyond Plastics course, which is given by, given by Bennington College in Vermont. Uh, the upcoming course isn't until April 13th, but it's seven weeks. I took it myself. It's with Judith Ank, the founder of Beyond Plastics. And you can sign up at bennington.edu slash online. Thanks so much, David. And our final announcement is from the UUA office at the UN, UU at UN. Um, so the UUA office at the UN is hosting its 2022 Intergenerational Spring Seminar in partnership with UU Ministry for Earth and UUSC. So the seminar will address the theme displacement and human rights, all in for climate justice. So it will take place online April 22nd to May 1st in 2022. Registration will open in January. And you can learn more about the seminar, including opportunities for local in-person gatherings at uua.org slash UN Spring Seminar. And we have the link, I'll post it in the chat as well. And I believe we do have a representative. I think the director, Bruce Knotts, is here tonight if there is anything that comes up further about the Spring Seminar later. So with that, I will just let you know about a little bit about our panel. That's me, hi, I'm Camila. Uh, we have David Sayer from Beyond Plastics, who I'll give a little bit more of a bio about shortly. Um, Ali Tharp, who's the co-director of UU Ministry for Earth, and Reverend Peggy Clark, who's the senior minister at Community Church of New York, and also was a UUA delegate um, at COP26. So David will be our first speaker this evening. David uses he, him pronouns. He's a charter member of the Beyond Plastics Alumni Network and coordinates our growing online community. David is a recent but devout student of the plastic pollution crisis and is increasingly working at the keyboard to pressure state and federal lawmakers to support plastic pollution legislation and related climate protections. Locally, he supports sustainable Saratoga in his hometown of Saratoga Springs, New York, and coordinates community pickups and other zero waste activities. You'll get more information about how to follow him, but I'll just do a quick plug now. Beyond Plastics Wiki and also at Mad Plastic on Instagram. Take it away, David. 
Great, thank you, Camila. Let me start sharing my screen. Okay, here we go, hit the blue button. Good evening. Congratulations for attending this session. You know, the topic of plastic pollution, like climate change, is a hyper problem, a meta problem. It's so large that many are overwhelmed and even anxious about our future. So by joining us here, you are one of the brave, someone who wants to confront and examine our relationship with plastic, and I salute you. So my name is David Sayer. I'm here tonight as a concerned citizen, mainly, uh, and as a graduate of the Beyond Plastics course. I do work in the information technology field and have no environmental training, but I have become increasingly alarmed by what I've learned through Beyond Plastics, as well as my own self-study, uh, much of which I have put online at that first link, which is an informational site covering all aspects of the plastic crisis. Uh, and the title of my talk is Turning Off the Tap, which is what virtually all scientific and policy experts agree needs to happen. And that is to stop the flood of plastics and especially single use plastic, plastics into our everyday lives and environment. Uh, in my spare time, I do environmental remediation of plastic pollution, which is to say I pick trash. <laughs> I sometimes join am joined by members of my local sustainability organization, uh, but mostly I'm a lone trash vigilante. And while it feels great, I'll be the first to tell you that it's a false solution to the plastic pollution crisis. Um, just as I like to pick, put trash in its place, I do the same with information. And here's a snapshot of the wiki I just mentioned. I began curating this information while taking the Beyond Plastics course with Judith Inc. Still a work in progress, but it's my attempt to bring together, you know, bite-sized news you can use of all the latest educational research and plastic or political happenings in a coherent, searchable site. And to kick us off, I know that many of you may be more aware than most uh, in the topic of plastic pollution, and that's great. But I'm going to throw some news at you, and if you've heard it all, then I want to see you raise your Zoom hand at the end so I can shake it. So, did you know? that microplastics and nanoplastics are in the air we breathe, the water we drink, the rain that falls, and even the snowflakes we catch on our tongue? Did you know that plastic is everywhere on the globe from the highest slopes of Mount Everest to our most remote deserts and even to the bottom of the Mariana Trench? So in one lifetime, more or less, humans have coated the planet with a fine layer of permanent microplastics. And did you know that in less than a decade, by 2030, our plastic pollution will likely double? And did you know that tires are a chief source of microplastics or that the sea is actually spraying its microplastics back into the atmosphere? They're so loaded. And do you know that the tire microplastic runoff itself can carry persistent organic pollutants such as 6-PPD quinone, a chemical which leaches into the environment was recently discovered to be lethal to salmon and perhaps other creatures. Uh, by, by the way, I recommend that New York Times article. It reads like a whodunit. You can search on mass killer of salmon. And did you know that plastic uh, can function as an ecosystem or a life raft for invasive species and microorganisms, allowing diseases and parasites to be introduced across continents? And there's a whole new sphere of science studying this ecosystem, AKA the plastosphere. And did you know that plankton, the marine microorganisms are eating microplastic? These tiny Antarctic columbolins are at the bottom of the food chain 
which makes nearly every other species dependent on them as a food source. And now they are introducing microplastics into that food chain. I'm not a scientist, but that can't be good. Embrace yourselves because you can see where this is going. Plastic isn't only found in marine life. In January of this year, the first evidence of microplastics in human placenta was discovered on both maternal and fetal sides. That can't be good either, especially since, as you'll see in that bottom bullet, if you can read it, microplastics aren't inert, right? They carry substances or chemicals which could affect human health and development. Uh, these substances are called EDCs or endocrine disrupting chemicals because they interfere with hormone action in our bodies and they've been linked to many adverse health outcomes, including cancer, reproductive impairment, metabolic diseases, disorders, uh, cognitive impairment, falling sperm rates. And that last one, falling sperm rates poses especially dire consequences for our race as Dr. Shauna Swan uh, argues in her recent book, Countdown, there on the right. And baby feces, yeah, plastic is here too. Now, why is the baby bigger than the adult here? Because in this study just published in September, six New York state uh, infants right here in New York all had levels of PET uh, in their stool. And three newborns also had microplastics in their very first stool, the meconium. Uh, the infant stool contained on average more than 10 times higher PET concentrations than that of adults. It's thought that infants could be exposed to higher levels of microplastics through their you know, use of bottles, uh, teethers, and toys. Uh, and a 2019 study estimated that a third, that's a third of plastic waste leaks into the environment. It's estimated that 15 million tons of plastic enter the oceans each year. And with that plastic becoming microplastic, entering the food chain and riding up the food chain, it may not surprise you that the average person ingests a credit card's worth of microplastic each week. And the chemical additives in plastics also leach into the environment, or in some cases, our food and bodies. So did you know all that? I did not oh. know that. You have two minutes, David. <laughs> OK. Um, I'm going to skip through this report then. And uh, this was just published this week. Like I said, I like to share the latest, greatest news. Here's where we're going. Here's the real reason I'm here today. If you take one thing away, I only want you to champion this message. As Common Sense will tell you, and as the Reckoning Report uh, that I just passed over mentions, our number one recommendation is to reduce plastic production, right? It's massively important that we turn off the tap. And by that, I mean the plastic production tap. There it is. And what is that tap? The tap is the fossil fuel industry because 99% of plastics are manufactured from fossil fuels. More specifically, most plastics manufactured in the US come from ethane, which is a cheap byproduct of hydrofracking. And to catch you up, the US is now, since 2018, the largest producer of oil and gas in the world, largely due to the shale revolution and uh, fracking operations. So, this reality should reframe how people think of the plastic crisis. It means that plastic is a climate change issue as it totally relies on fossil fuels. It means that plastic reduction can help us meet that 1.5 degree global warming target. Uh, fossil fuels are integral to the production of plastics, but if you look beyond just the production phase, you'll see that plastic pollutes at every stage in its life cycle, right? From extraction to transportation and processing, through the ethane cracker, neural production, to exporting, importing, uh, then onto its useful and likely brief life in the hands of a consumer. 
before it's inevitably disposed of in landfill or incineration or unmanaged waste. And collectively, these life cycle phases produce enough greenhouse gas emissions that if plastic were a country, if it were its own country, it would be ranked the world's fifth largest emitter of greenhouse gases, 1.7 gigatons to be exact. So now let's compare. Um, I, I want to share this uh, information about a, a report from Beyond Plastics just released in uh, end of October. Uh, for those of you familiar with us, you hopefully heard about the report, the new coal, which um, conservatively estimates that the carbon footprint of the U.S. plastics industry, uh, it, uh, uh, well, we equate it to the emissions of the coal industry. And it found, this report found that plastic is catching up to coal emissions rapidly and that plastic is on pace to exceed U.S. coal emissions by 2030. Again, 2030 um, exceeding uh, the plastic, uh, excuse me, the coal uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So that's the title of the report, The Plastic is the New Coal. Uh, we don't have time to summarize all the report findings. Final, um, final thought. But, uh, well, here's one uh, about the economic or environmental justice impact of pl uh, plastic emissions. Uh, and that uh, this report also found the emissions and off, uh, excuse me, let me, yes, that more than 90% of the climate pollution that the plastic industry reports to the EPA occurs in just 18 communities, 18 communities, and they're listed in the report. Um, I'd love to share more about uh, environmental impacts um, and uh, more action slides, but uh, I will honor my timekeeper. Thank you, Camila. Thank you so much, David. I'm, I'm really grateful that you made a little interactive moment and, and asked us you know, to think about what we already knew. And you know, I was confident and I only knew like two of the things. So I really appreciate you taking that moment. Um, these will be available. This slideshow will be available um, afterwards. So you will be able to get it. I did put one of the links in the chat um, so you can see that you know, right away. Um, again, David, thank you so much. That was extremely informative and like right here in front of my face, touchable. I, I, I bought a glass bottle today, proud of myself. And now I'm even more happy that I wasn't staring at a plastic bottle right in front of me. Thank you again, David. Thank you so much. And we'll have more time to talk in the moderated discussion after the next two panelists. Excellent. So our next speaker is Ali Tharp. She, they pronouns. Ali is the co-director of the Unitarian Universalist Ministry for Earth. She manages the denomination-wide Create Climate Justice Initiative and is a member of the UUA Side with Love organizing strategy team. Her work is grounded in supporting local to global action for climate justice through the UU faith tradition. Ali lives in Austin, Texas and is a member of the Wildflower UU Church. She's also a core volunteer with the festival Beach Food Forest, which is an edible and medicinal landscape on public parkland in um, East Austin. And Allie also serves on the board of Serafina Food Pantry. Take it away, Allie. Thank you, Camila. And thank you to all our hosts and to everyone who's here tonight. It's great to be here. So as, as was just said, I'm, I'm the co-director of the Unitarian Universalist Ministry for Earth, and I wanted to start by, I know not everyone in the room is a Unitarian Universalist, but many 
of you are and and there are many familiar names but many I don't know as well so I just wanted to share a bit about who we are in grounding um, my piece of this panel today so UU Ministry for Earth was founded 32 years ago as the seventh principle project, and it was rooted in bringing the seventh principle to life in UU congregations. It evolved over the years into the Unitarian Universalist Ministry for Earth, and now today in 2021, our mission is to be a wellspring of spiritual and educational grounding and practical support to catalyze environmental justice, climate justice, and the flourishing of all life. So that's who we are and what we do. Um, and we do that in partnership with UUs all over the world, primarily in the United States, but there's UUs in Hong Kong, in Canada, in Mexico, in India who engage with our work. And as we know, climate change is a global issue that will take all of us. So we, we do love to, um, to support UUs in their congregations and communities all over the country and all over the world. To, um, to be resourced and supported through this work that really will be defining the next century. So we've been here 32 years. We know that climate change has um, really put a mandate on the need for a UU ministry for Earth, that there's some really deep work to do to heal and restore um, the balance of the relationship between humanity and all of life and, and with each other. So we also have a core value of race and class informed organizing for environment, environmental justice and climate. We know that there's some, some scars in the environmental movement from a lack of understanding by environmentalists who had more money, who had more influence and affluence and whiteness to understand the impacts of those who are most affected by environmental harm. So I appreciated David naming that in his talk as well, that um, these are justice issues. Climate change is a justice issue and it's deeply connected to the other justice issues that, that Unitarian Universalists and, and friends and allies in this social movement care about so much. So that's who we are. It's been an honor to work with Ministry for Earth for the last seven years. I got pulled into the climate movement through a Unitarian Universalist who um, was locking down on the construction site of the Keystone Pipeline, Keystone XL South in East Texas in 2012. So um, it's been quite a journey and I know we're here tonight because there's so much left to do. <laughs> and um, in this, the, the theme of this panel, I was asked to talk about the movement moment that we're in, what opportunities do I see, what, um, what concerns do I have? And so I wanted to share a little bit about that with you. Um, I'll say we also had a very similar conversation with the Minnesota Unitarian Universalist community just last night. Um, so I, I think it's amazing that UUs are coming together at state and um, denominational levels to have these conversations. Um, one of the big pieces about the moment that we're in was the line three struggle that happened this year um, with the, the just continual push of the fossil fuel industry. Um, so there was a, a tremendous movement that happened in Minnesota and um, thousands of UUs went there. Many of the people on the call went there. And we see, I just wanna name that, you know, we're facing the, some of the most powerful industries on the planet. So we have to be real that it's not going to be easy. Um, and I really want to lift up 
the need for spiritual grounding for those of us who are doing this work because it's so easy to be overwhelmed. And so please ground down in your relationship with the earth itself, with your relationship to um, what brings you joy and inspiration and meaning in life as you do this work. And one tool to help you reflect on that is by the Building Movement Project. It's something that, that I would encourage you to um, take some time to reflect on what your role in the movement ecosystem is. And um, so I'm going to post a link in a chat. This is something to, to um, open and bookmark or print if you want to print it. It's like a reflection booklet to understand what's your role. And for the UUs in the room, what's your congregation's role? What's your state action network's role? Which of these um, typical roles within the ecosystem? Because it, it takes all of us, it takes different people with different skills to do this. Um, what are our unique gifts and what's our role within the movement? So I think that's a question that we have to come back to over and over again, you know, as we continue to grow and move. And another thing that um, I'll end with, I know we're short on time, is the, um, there's a question that I believe was um, started with the disability rights movement. Um, but the question is, are you willing to be transformed in your service to this work? And I see that as a question that, that um, has transcended you know, individual justice movements to be um, a real call to all of us that, um, you know, this will take generations and it will take um, a deep part of us to, to transform everything, to challenge systems that control policy, that control economics, that control the way we live our daily lives. Um, so we need to be willing to be transformed in order to be able to transform these enormous systems. And I think ultimately that's, um, you know, a, a way to stay fluid and grounded and kind of also have that, that strength of water, <laughs> that strength of adapt adaptability and resilience in the face of these challenges. So I'll end there. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ali. That was it's very powerful to hear you speak. I don't think it's just because I know you. I think you really give off this vibe. I feel the sense of urgency, just like I did, you know, with, with David's presentation. And thank you also for sharing also a little bit more of the history of where Ministry for Earth came from, that it was founded in our, in, in the UU commitment um, to embrace, enact, embody, bring out our seventh principle. And it's really living our values. Um, and we'll have more time to talk to you later. I'm tempted to do it now. But I want to move ahead to our final panelist before our moderated discussion. And that person is Reverend Peggy Clark. Reverend Peggy Clark is the senior minister at Community Church of New York, serves as the chair of the New York State Advocacy Network, NUDGE, the UUs for Justice, and as a deeply committed person to environmental justice, Reverend Clark has served on the board of the UUA's Climate Initiative, Commit to Respond. Also the UU Environmental Justice Collaboratory uh, and was one of the denominations observer delegates at both the 2015 and the 2021 UN Climate Summits. In addition, Reverend Clark is a Green Faith Fellow and represented our denomination at Standing Rock. I could probably talk for days more about Reverend Peggy Clark's accomplishments, but I'm gonna go ahead and pass it off to her. Thanks, Camila. 
and thank all of the other speakers and the organizers for inviting me. I'm I'm excited to be here. I'm uh, I feel like I've been wanting to talk about this stuff for a long time, and maybe I maybe I just talk about it all the time, and maybe some point someone has to stop me. But so what I was asked to talk about in kind of a broad way is um, is Glasgow, what just happened at the climate summit, and what I think is the next work for climate justice. So to put this in context, a lot of my um, reflections on Glasgow have to do with what happened in Paris. I think that they're, uh, it's, under, it's important to sort of understand both of them. So when we were in Paris, uh, first when we got to Paris, the idea was, will this even happen? Right? Saudi Arabia was actually trying to stop the conversation altogether. They wanted to postpone for five years. It was it was an open question. Was this summit even going to move forward? Then it did move forward. Um, there were a lot of, we were pushing really hard. The general idea is, could we get nations to agree to keep uh, warming to 2.0 degrees Celsius? And that was a big if. There was a lot of pushing for that. And while sort of formally that was happening, all the activists and all the sort of NGOs were like, two degrees is really too warm. It has to be 1.5. But 1.5 was not really on the table at all at that point. Uh, the other thing that wasn't on the table were reparations. Um, at some point I went into a conversation, the State Department had very intentionally sort of organized clergy and wanted to be in relationship with us. And so we had um, a seat at the table and we were going into a meeting and and we were told, don't mention reparations. If you mention reparations, the, this meeting's gonna end. So flash, let's flash forward to Glasgow. You show up in Glasgow and um, 1.5 was sort of an accepted norm. Not not for everybody, right? Saudi Arabia was still like, do we have to get to two? But, but largely there was this um, cultural shift from 2.0 to 1.5, this general acceptance that two, two degrees was too much and we had to be more ambitious. Um, reparations had turned into conversation about loss and damage and it was real conversation. Uh, I'm not gonna pretend we got to where we needed to be, but but it was it was discussed, it was, a, it was normalized. Other things were normalized. Um, youth were brought into the conversation and really encouraged, now I have to say encouraged often to their frustration, but encouraged to keep pushing. Now the youth were like, you know, why do we have to keep pushing you? You're the people with power, just do what you're supposed to do and we can go home. So, and that was sort of a common, a common theme in Glasgow was like, you know, sort of everybody looking to everybody else to make something happen. Uh, indigenous people were centralized in a way that they absolutely weren't. In fact, they were barely discussed in Paris. Uh, they were given a real seat at the table. Fossil fuels hadn't been discussed in Paris. They were discussed in Glasgow. Um, and then there were things that happened that were just good. Um, an agreement, sort of these side agreements, an agreement about methane, an agreement about deforestation. There were, um, there was this sense like everybody knew that this was urgent. Everybody knew that something had to happen. Whereas just six years ago, it felt like it was an open question, you know, that that the activists were the ones pushing this. And this time it just felt like 
people had heard the science. Some of those leaders said, well, we didn't have the science, which I'm going to say isn't true, but, but they heard the science. So for me, it felt far more hopeful than I think I went in there thinking it would be. And that's because um, there was there was reason to think we were never going to get to where we needed to go. Before Paris, we were on target uh, for six degrees of warming. After Paris, we were on target for 3.7 degrees of warming. I'm just looking this up to make sure I'm right. Yes. So two point, we're now on target for 2.4 degrees of warming. So that's better. That's not where we need to be, but it's better. As it was becoming clear, we weren't going to get to where we needed to be. Um, one of the pushes was, can we come back? So according to Paris, we come back in five years. Could we come back in two years? Would, would world leaders agree to come back in two years and try and close this gap? And instead, like at the last minute, in fact, I don't know if you how much attention you were paying, but it really ran over, like cop closed. And then the leaders were just still there. Negotiators were still there. And in the end, they came out of the room and said, um, we're going to come back next next year. So 2022, which was huge. And they said, we're going to close the gap. So instead of the kind of resistance that we've been feeling of, no, we can't do this. No, we don't want to do this. It's somebody else's job. This felt like sort of at the last minute where they were saying, actually, this was our job and we didn't do it, which was a relief to me. Now, it would have been a bigger relief to me if they had just done it while we were there. <laughs> but, but you know, when there are 196 countries negotiating, sometimes you just have to give them some leeway. Um, so, so other things that happened, um, I, I am disappointed. They've been talking about giving $100 billion to the most vulnerable countries. That $100 billion has not yet been, it's sort of this number that just keeps getting tossed around. And in climate justice circles, um, it's this, what feels like a false promise, like, you know, but it's coming, but there's no infrastructure for it. There's no system for it. There's no funding for it that I can see. So we really need to be pushing. We specifically need to be pushing for, um, for greater attention and I guess more urgent attention to those nations that are most vulnerable. There really are um, countries that are suffering tremendously right now. And countries like ours tend to think we have time. We throw around 2030, but right? we have to half emissions by 2030. And we kind of throw this around as if people could wait to 2030, but if you're losing your home because the ocean is moving in, you don't have till 2030. So there's an urgency around uh, vulnerability that we need to be, um, getting far more serious about. Um, I started writing some notes to myself about what thoughts, Peggy, before we open the moderated discussion. Some of oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. So, so quickly, you use, um, you use can do a whole lot of things. They can stop pipelines. They can start normalizing things like solar and hybrid. And I mean, there's a lot of ways for us to get involved if we're serious about it. And I think that the shift in in tone in Glasgow came from a norm, an international normalizing and acceptance of what's real. And that falls on all of us. That's our job. Okay, now I'm done. <laughs> Thank you. Fired up. Heck yeah. 
all of us. No, thank you so much, Peggy. It's definitely wonderful to get a firsthand experience from what's happening abroad and, and just also really for you to give that summary. I mean, I was on the tip of my chair. I was like, it closed. And then what happened? And then what happened? Like, I, it was really great to have your perspective of actually being there um, come up. And also really I, that inspiration at the end, just reminding us, you know, it's not just us here on this call working on this. Like we are, again, collaboration is key. We have to work together on this. It's not just that we're waiting for someone else. You do something because everyone else is, and we can actually make the change we want to see. So thank you again, Peggy. So now we are going to shift into a moderated discussion. So um, I have a few questions that I will be asking uh, the panelists and they can answer as they feel moved to. If someone has like a burning question and you were like, dang, I wanted to ask that, um, feel free, you can write it to me in the chat. And if there's a little bit of time, I'll try to include that question as well. So thank you again, panelists. It was just wonderful to hear kind of also on these different levels. The big reveal is we made sure we had some someone to represent and tell us about some of these local New York State issues, what people are fired up about. We also got to talk more on a national across the United States level hearing from Ali, and then of course, Reverend Peggy, looking at the whole globe, how everyone is in on this together. So hopefully everyone, all the participants have enjoyed this so far, and now we get to the juicy questions. So um, the first thing I'm going to ask, and any, anyone can answer this, um, how can faith and principles inform our responses to the climate crisis. So I think all of you have called upon us to do something, but how can faith and principles inform our responses? And, and kind of connected to that, what role are our congregations playing in meeting and tackling this crisis? Yeah, so I've participated in, in faith groups and, and non-faith-based action groups. And, you know, you never quite know what motivates individuals. Um, and it's not always appropriate to ask, but we're so grateful when they do. And, you know, I think uh, having response, accountability and responsibility is where I think congregations can shine. Um, you know, the, the climate crisis, whether it's plastic, and again, I, I'm, uh, when I have my it feels like daily meetings, but they're weekly meetings now with a lot of my Beyond Plastics volunteers in our action network. Um, you know, we uh, we all feel that same urgency and um, and it becomes a kind of union. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the faith and the principles are there. They're maybe unspoken, um, but um, I certainly would like to see a congregation such as yours, um, you know, recognize, as a commitment to each other, you know, the urgency and, and, and you know, collaborate. You know, I, I am in IT and actually the technologies I, I work on are collaboration. So it's always about communicating. And I think Reverend Dr. Uh, Natalie, you said in, in your opening prayer about, you know, the immensity of our capability to connect and communicate. That's where it all happens, uh, whether we do that uh, in or around, um, you know, in, in pews or around a, a boardroom table, we all have to collaborate and uh, hold each other uh, and use each other's uh, faith and time and talents. 
Thanks so much, David. Reverend Peggy, were you going to say something? Well, as a Unitarian Universalist, I find that um, our shared spiritual path is one of community. And when I think about how are we really going to get ourselves out of this mess, it it's grounded in the relationships we create together. And when I think about the new world that is going to have to emerge once we're no longer dependent on fossil fuels, it will be significantly more local and it will be slower than it is right now. And I actually think congregations are poised for um, exactly what we need. So many people live without authentic connection, but we have that already built into our lives. And that's where we're going to get both the strength and the very practical, like just how do we live? We, we start growing food together. We start sharing rides and you know learning how to do everything on, in multi-platform forums. It is, I think, um, I think that we're way ahead of the game. If only we could take it seriously. I think if we could say to each other, this is critical. I want a new world. I'm willing to build it. Will you build it with me? I think that what's possible is, is transformative. For us, it's a matter of just making that choice and really sort of covenanting with each other to, to create something that maybe we can't right now even fully imagine. Allie. Reverend Peggy, you're reminding me of my favorite quote from uh, Aaron Dottie Roy, another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. Um, I have that on, on little uh, campaign signs leading up to my doorway. <laughs> um, that's how deeply I'm like, it's possible and it's coming. And the way you, like, I can't wait till it's slower and more local. I cannot wait. <laughs> um, but I, I do want to say on the on this question, for me, um, the Unitarian Universalist principles are guidelines for how we live our life, and they're, you know, prophetic visions of the world we want and the way we want to be with one another. And I frankly think that when it comes to the climate crisis, which is something that could unravel our social fabric and our bio system on a global scale, you know, this vision of world peace and justice and equity that that brings us together as a faith is not possible if we don't take this seriously, is not possible if we don't pull the brakes and turn off the tap, as David said, and really um, deepen our commitment to that vision, because it's all really on the brink of, um, you know, being a dream that 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 um, it's you know it's up to us to actually um, make that a, a living reality on this earth. Um, you know we have to actually mean it, um, and we have to actually live it. So I think that's um, what it comes down to for me. And then in, in terms of the role of congregations, I want to lift up the Green Sanctuary Program, which I mentioned Ministry for Earth created way back decades ago, but now the UUA manages this program. And last year, they relaunched it as Green Sanctuary 2030, mobilizing for climate justice. And the focus is on getting congregations 
um, organized around the pillars of climate mitigation, climate adaptation and resilience, and climate justice. So please, you know, go to the UUA.org um, Environment Green Sanctuary Program to look at that as like a helpful tool and resource to um, do congregational organizing around this. And the other thing I wanna share is really from, um, it, there's a concept that's um, growing within the city sustainability movements around community resilience hubs. And congregations, because we have existing social networks, a lot of congregations have a lot of infrastructure, um, they can have a, a key role to play in community resilience hubs where people can look for support and resources in moments of crisis. Um, and the climate, you know, climate change, I think this year, every single region in the country experienced a climate disaster this year, you know, like it's not, it's here, you know, it's not some future problem. Um, and I, I just want to close out by saying Ministry for Earth, we do something called Spring for Change, a season of sacred activism every spring. So we encourage congregations to use the entire spring season and not just simply Earth Day to focus on these issues, um, starting around World Water Day through Earth Day, and then um, May 22nd is Biodiversity Day globally. Um, so Spring for Change, a season of sacred activism. In 2022, we're focused on the theme of get rooted and get ready. And that will look like, what's your connection to the earth, the land around you? Um, can you do things that, that build um, regeneration? Can you be ready for the climate issues in your area, looking at climate resilience and what to expect on the local level? Um, and then we'll also partner with Interfaith Power and Light around intergenerational justice issues in their Faith Climate Week of Action, the, the week of Earth Day. Um, so that's something that, that congregations can partner with Ministry for Earth to focus on and you'll adapt it to your local context. You know, do you have a place to plant a pollinator garden or do you have um, a way to plug in with the creation of community resilience infrastructure in your town or city? Um, but that's our theme for um, the coming spring and, and my, my invitation to every congregational organizer in the room right now. Yay, I love being invited. Thank you, Allie. Um, so I have two questions that I'm gonna like combine. Um, I'm gonna ask them both at the same time and you should hopefully have one thing for each question. Um, one question that will lead us into our five minute action moment um, before we close out tonight. Um, is why should individuals and congregations um, care about state level policy? So like, I feel like I've heard it. I feel like hopefully everyone participating today is like, I know exactly why I should care right now. But if you have like a nice solid one-liner is like to get help get people to care or why you care or something like that, please share that. And a tough one for the panelists here tonight, you could just let us know something that helps sustain you in this work. So one, why do we even care? And two, what has been sustaining you? And I, you should, you can take a moment to think about it because it should, and everyone can take a moment because we've been going through a pandemic, okay? It's been a lot. We got to take a moment to think about what's helping sustain us in this 
work because our passion is important and we have to be able to sustain that passion. Well, I'll share that uh, regarding policy um, and state level. So, you know, Maine passed the nation's first EPR law this summer, and that was encouraging to see. And our states have so many you know, unique personalities and characteristics. You know, usually it's the coasts leading, and maybe that's what's going to have to happen to bring about the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, um, which is one of our actions as well for this evening, you know, calling in and uh, finding more co-sponsors for that important uh, piece of uh, legislation. Um, but we're short on time uh, and sustaining me, you know, the energy of others, um, you know, getting out uh, with others too. So I, I said at the outset that, you know, pickups, cleanups are a false solution, but it feels so good. You know, it's tangible, it's immediate, and it feels like we're healing the world. So I encourage that. And, and of course, people, it's visible. And, uh, you know, we, so the local level, um, you know, working with communities, businesses, and of course, state, I think that's where the leadership is going to come. Um, and often they have the, the better resources to attack those problems. Yes, thank you, David. Um, Peggy, also I will encourage anyone who has good sustaining themselves practices, if the chat is open, to put that there so we have like a collective, because collaboration is key, of sustaining practices. Take it away, Peggy. So, I mean, the question about why should we care? I, I mean, I, I'm going to hope that that's because we value all of life and I, I can't make anybody care. <laughs> I just, I just can't, but I can, um, but I do my best to, um, to show people how gorgeous everything is, how beautiful the world really is and how easy it is to love it. Um, and the state level, there's actually a lot we can do both the state and the city level. I mean, I was just reading that the Bronx is uncovering and, you know, a, a stream that they covered a long time ago. Right in the 50s, it was sort of progress to have everything covered by asphalt. And we can make very real change by just saying, you know, uncover the streams, make some of these roads into local parks. I mean, there's a lot of, that we can do right here, right now, and have very real um, consequences for for our own. We will in, in just a few minutes, too. Stay oh, that's around. right. That's right. Stick around. And I'll and what sustains me is um, a lot of things, but the willingness to experience joy, to say that as an activist, it is easy to get burned out. It is easy to get angry. It's easy to be um, just, just exhausted and hopeless. And I have found that, you know, if, if the work for justice isn't sourced by joy, we will never realize the world we dream about. And so, so that's where I am. <laughs> yes. And I see lots of things popping up in the chat. So if you have a chance, check that out. Thank you so much, Peggy. Um, I'm gonna let Ali speak and then I won't speak again. I'll just let David, D David, Daniel dive right into, excuse me, <clears throat> Reverend Daniel dive right into our action moment before our special fantastic closing words by Reverend Dr. Audet. Um, I'm from Texas, y'all. So state politics have the ability to change uh, for justice or to be an extremely crippling, depressing force against justice. And I think many of us are probably aware um, those who oppose uh, human rights, women's rights, uh, environmental justice, 
have been very strategically organizing to take control of state level politics for decades. Um, and it's critical that people who believe in social justice and human rights counter that and organize at the state level. Um, and then secondly, what sustains me is some of what's been said, you know, connecting to the earth. I've been very inspired by um, Robin Wall Kimmerer and um, her message of listening, listening to the earth, listening to the plants before you harvest them um, and seeking to, to build, build an, an embodied um, and spiritual connection to, um, to the earth. So that's where I find my greatest um, source of sustenance. I am genuinely just energized and excited. And this is, I'm so excited I knocked over my lamp, but um, this is what we call an action moment. And if any of you have ever done work with side with love, uh, this is a similar moment. So we're gonna wrap up at 8.05, but these next five minutes, this time from now till just about eight o'clock is a special action moment. And you can choose, yes, the 109 people here right now can choose one of these actions, either at local New York City level, state level for New York, calling Governor Hochul, or wherever you are in the country, contacting your congressional representatives or the Army Corps of Engineers and asking for specific climate justice requests. I noticed in the chat, we had the leader of strength and local climate commitments, Doris Marlin, one of the ministries of UU Ministry for Earth, highlight the Green Climate Fund. This echoes what Reverend Peggy spoke about, this move to get billions of dollars committed to support frontline nations around the world. We have work you can do right here in New York to reduce local plastic. Um, and there's work to do on the state level as we move towards a more, more just and more equitable context. You can do a lot in a few moments. Um, I hope that you had success. I saw a few people on the phone lines. If we don't get them tonight, we can call them tomorrow. But just like it's just so wonderful and energizing to just see the passion that can manifest so quickly um, and in such a wonderful gathered space. And I am so happy at this moment to invite the Reverend Audette Fulbright to offer our closing prayer. If you'll just breathe gently into this space with all of these people who've given up some time tonight to be together and to think and plan to do this work. Holy One, God of barren branches, bud and butterfly, baby's breath and the breath of babies, draw close. Gather our spirits to you as a mother bird draws her chicks under her wing. Uphold each of us who mourns or whose soul is weighed down too much with the struggles of an unjust world. Give us the wisdom to find new paths where our siblinghood for all living beings is clear and true. Help us be a lamp for others on the journey, especially those into whose hands leadership has been entrusted. Keep our eyes set on freedom, freedom which rings for every person and every being in every land under your bright, beautiful sun. Let the beauty of the world be a balm for tired hearts, 
restoring our spirits and reminding us that love and justice walk hand in hand, but our lives are also meant for rest, for song, for renewal, like the land, like the water, like the air we breathe. Bring us home to one another, giver of life, singer of the universal song, and may our lives be a blessing on the earth. Amen. Ashe. Aho. Blessed be. Thank you so much for that beautiful closing, Reverend Audette. And thank you to everyone who has made time to come tonight. We wish you, uh, wish you well. And we want to invite you to a follow-up event to this one where we'll be having a community screening, a free screening of the Emmy award-winning documentary, The Story of Plastic, as well as a follow-up discussion with special guest executive producer, Steve Wilson. And we're, we're working on confirming also the participation of some grassroots um, environmental justice leaders from Rise St. James in Louisiana, Reverend Harry Joseph Sr. and Sharon Levine. So hopefully they'll join us as well. The invitation has gone out. To them as well as to you. We hope to see you again January 11th and um, for those events later in the spring as well that were mentioned tonight, the spring seminar, the week of Earth Day, and, um, and many other programs. So blessings to all. Thank you and good night.